Lord, um, you love us. You love us as a congregation. Lord, you love me. You love these people that you have for me to preach to. And you are mighty. And you are gracious. And your Holy Spirit is here. Your Holy Spirit indwells me. Your Holy Spirit indwells these people. And you can do amazing things through your word. Lord, I pray that you would shut out every fear. Shut out every fear in me that causes me to look at the people here of Harvest and, and, and causes me to maybe shrink back or causes me to say what doesn't need to be said or, or what not. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would work through the spiritual gifts that you've given. I pray, Father, that you would shut out every fear from the hearts and minds that sit before me here. Lord, that what your word says would ring true, would be empowered by the Holy Spirit within these hearts and minds and would teach, would correct, would encourage, would rebuke. Lord, I pray for a powerful work this morning that only you can do. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I never want to come across like I'm complaining about preaching the word. But I, I do want to say I've shared with a few of you that, that last Sunday was probably the hardest sermon I've ever preached. Um, just subject material and the, and the, the, the uh, challenge of, of fear. And... It, it, I so appreciate so many of your kind words and encouragements, and I will tell you that uh, preaching on Romans 1, 18 through 32 was like a spiritual battle uh, every moment, and, and um, I think I feel a great freedom this week that uh, I'm past it. It has a tendency to... Uh, make us cringe the idea of what happens in a depraved culture as it becomes more and more depraved and set apart from, in a bad way, from its creator and the degeneration that happens within it. And it's hard and sad to watch our culture move further and further away from what it was intended to be because of sin, intended by God, intended by its founders uniquely. It, it's, it's tough in that way. 
But I want to tell you that what we look at this morning in Romans 2, 1 through 16, in a lot of ways is more dangerous. It's not dangerous to look at it, but it, it, it is subject matter that is more dangerous with regard to if it is present in our hearts and present in our culture. Think of it this way. Think of like um, doing one of those things that I've said I will never do, and that's whitewater raft, okay? Down something like the Okoe River. I look at that, and I'm like huge body of water churning, lapping, and, and rushing forward and backward. And so much so that, you know, you need a guide, you need a huge raft, you need helmets. And if you ever need helmets to ride on water, what's the, do you really need to do that? But, you know, life vests and training and stuff like that. But compare the danger of that situation to Sugar Creek. And in many ways, and many of you know of this, even from personal experience of losing someone close to you to Sugar Creek, that in, men, in some ways Sugar Creek is more dangerous because it's smooth on the surface, but underneath it, there's churning water. There's holes in the, in the bed that wasn't there before. There can be in a whole tree laying underneath that surface. And in some ways, it's more dangerous than the white water rapids because on the surface, it looks fine. But beneath the surface, there's the same danger present. And that's the sense that, that we come to Romans 2 with. And a reminder here from Romans 1, 18 and 19. That he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. This is how Paul introduces and how God's word introduces us to this idea that man is terribly fallen and in need of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation for whoever believes. But we need that power. We need a powerful gospel to save from this condition. And he divides up this condition into three defendants in this this courtroom that he's describing, we looked last week at the defendant number one, which is the, the um, self-centered, depraved person or that self-centered, depraved culture that very well is represented from the culture of Corinth, which Paul is writing this letter from. And this, these verses certainly apply to that, but they also apply to who we're looking at this morning. Because the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And what we're looking at this morning is more like Sugar Creek. The self-righteous, moral person that on the surface seems smooth. 
on the surface seem like religion-wise they got it taken care of. Or maybe they've just reasoned it away. But under the surface are the same dangers. Let's look at uh, Romans 2, 1 through 16 here. It says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightfully falls, rightly falls on those who practice such things, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness has meant, is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek the glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of God is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So as I mentioned, we're looking this morning at defendant number two in this courtroom that Paul is, is, is painting the mental picture of as he's arguing for the fact that man can only and must be saved by grace through faith and that alone is going to suffice to have a relationship with God. And I have moral uh, in this in quotation marks because understand that this is a moral person that is by their own definition. I'm moral. I've got good morals. You know, I was raised right. But it's not God's standard of morality. This is the self-righteous moral person. One writer talks about how at this point in Paul's letter, he is talking about the judgment of God upon self-appointed judges. The judgment of God upon self-appointed judges. And it's interesting here that even in Paul's arguing, you can see how he shifts his, his way that he talks to this person, if you will, sitting before him, 
who has reasoned away and philosophized away the fact that they have any guilt to be concerned about before God. He switches to a, a logic uh, type of argument with this person. And uh, it's very, very likely that in some ways, whereas the verses we looked at last week, you could picture the culture of Corinth that Paul is living within where we talked about how every night a thousand temple prostitutes would come down from the temple and, and would sell their wares all over the city and that this was a part of the culture. You know, it's kind of like what's done in Corinth stays in Corinth type of philosophy. And here Paul switches to more of a Greco-Roman logic argument, almost shifting over to Rome, where in Rome, it was more of in the upper echelon that would reason away that the type of immorality that you would find in Corinth would be, would be uh, acceptable, either the upper echelon or just the, the uh, general um, lower level of public itself. But as I mentioned a few weeks ago, there's a man that would, would well represent in Roman culture, who Paul would almost be putting on the stand here as a defendant, and his name was Seneca. Seneca, as F.F. Bruce writes, what about a man like Paul's illustrious contemporary Seneca, the stoic moralist, the tutor of Nero? Seneca might have listened to Paul's indictment, speaking of the verses prior to this, and said, yes, That is perfectly true of the great masses of mankind. And I concur in the judgment which you pass on them. But there are others, of course, like myself, who deplore these tendencies as much as you do. Not only did he, being Seneca, exalt the great moral virtues, he exposed hypocrisy. He preached the equality of all human beings. He acknowledged the pervasive character of evil. He practiced the incalculated and inculcated daily self-examination. He ridiculed vulgar idolatry. He assumed the role of a moral guide. And so this was a person, a prominent person of Roman culture who in his own mind was very moral. And he exalted himself as as the... um, the target of what it means to be morality, uh, to be moral. He, he exalted himself as the pinnacle, the standard of what the true moral yet godless man should be. So we're looking this morning at three warning signs. Three warning signs that Paul is posting for those that fall into this area of self-righteous, moral people. And, and don't, as we, as we try not to do, don't just look out there at this type of person and not see what he might be pointing out in your own heart and in your own life. Because we can always have the danger of re- relying on our standard of morality or or reason away 
when, when we sense that God is no longer working within our lives, but it's okay because I've got this going on over here, these good things going on over here. That makes up for it. Okay, so, so even though Paul is speaking to unbelievers, the principles are still true for all of us. So let's look at the warning sign number one that Paul posts to his defendant. And that is that man's hypocrisy assumes on God's patience. Man's hypocrisy assumes on God's patience. We see there um, in the verses, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightfully falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them, that you will escape the judgment of God? When he says, therefore, starting out the chapter here, he's referring back, he's connecting the idea of God's judgment still back to Romans 8. He's he's saying, um, therefore... You fit this too. Listen up. And, and like I said, he steps into a logic uh, argument here. The line of reasoning here is God judges those who do these things. These things that, 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 that we've been talking about. And this person would say, hear, hear. And then he says, you judge who do them too. Meaning... You align yourself with God in this area. You admit that this is wrong. The third line in this argument is, uh, you do them. Maybe not as much. Maybe only once. But you do them. Therefore, you know that God is going to judge you as well. He's pointing out a hypocrisy. And here's the bottom line, okay? Again, Paul is arguing for why each and every person has got to come to a place where they are confronted with the fact that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He's talking to someone who's saying, I don't need the gospel. And he's saying, look at the hypocrisy that's in your heart. And I recognize it because a lot of times it's in mine too. Let's admit it. God is going to judge you. And the hypocrisy that's there is revealing it to you. Are you going to listen to it? He goes on in verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In each of these uh, arguments that Paul makes, here in this argument is that their hypocrisy is assuming on God's patience. In each of these, he brings the argument back to the fact that there will be a day of wrath. 
And you know what's probably the saddest thing about this day of wrath is that it'll be a day when God's wrath will be poured out on people. And probably the saddest thing is that it was already poured out on Christ and paid for, but yet not accepted. And therefore, the person will receive it. There will be a day of judgment. favorite commentary of mine says, moral people are presumptuous in their thinking. They strive to live a principled life and do not usually act as those in Romans 1 and assume that God will overlook their occasional moral lapse because they really do strive to be good. It's kind of like a We've seen it in movies or TV shows and, you know, maybe a slapstick type of situation where somebody's confronted with the law or, you know, the police officer or, the, or maybe it's uh, the hero is, is uh, sneaking into the castle and the guards come up, the goofy guards come up with their spears and it's like, hold it right there. And uh, what does the person do? But, hey, what's that over there? You know, and, and get them to turn or, or, hey, you better catch that guy. You know, and the goofy guards turn and they look, what is it? And they, they kind of scoot off. And, and that's what he's revealing is going on in this person's heart. It's like as soon as they feel an element of, oh, wait a second, uh, I shouldn't have done that. In their mind, it's like, oh, but what about this person? I'm not like that person over there. You know, I, and we can feel that. When we start to feel the Lord's conviction, when we start to feel him starting to penetrate our heart a little bit, the Holy Spirit starts to point out something in us that it's, it's, it's a reminder of why we need the gospel, but it can also be for his purpose of sanctifying us more, and we'll think in our mind, but, but I'm not like them. I mean, I can name off like five people that are worse about this than me. And we can have the same thing going on that that hypocrisy assumes on God's patience. I, uh, I had an embarrassing experience yesterday. I went to Home Depot twice. First time, I'm there with Kelly and we're about to check out. and um, I don't have my wallet on me. I'm so blessed that I live in town. I have worn a path between Kroger and my house going back to get my wallet. Um, and thankfully, this time it was in the car. Okay? But as usually happens, trip number two to Home Depot, you know, to get a di- little different fitting and a little different, uh, that one thing that I... I wish I'd picked up that first trip, and I go to the cashier, and I'm like, no wallet, same cashier. She looks at me, and she's like, how do you do that? <laughs> Seriously, she was just, I was just like, excuse me for a second, I want to see, speak to a manager, no, and she's just like, really? And that, that's what she said. And so I go back to the house, come back, go to the same cashier, and 
I just kind of start with these excuses, you know, like, uh, you know, busy, running here and there, you know, all this. And I just find, and she's just looking at me like, <laughs> just feeling sorry for Kelly is what she's doing. And, um, and I just look at her and I said, you know what, there's no excuse. There just isn't. And I, and I actually said, the sooner I stop making excuses, the sooner I'm going to learn and change. Hypocrisy is not what separates these people from the Lord. It's what keeps them res- from responding to his truth and to his conviction. Okay? We all have a degree of hypocrisy in our lives. As we're sanctified, as we grow, as, we, as he works on us, as he teaches us, our hearts become more and more in tune with what he is desiring to do in our lives. But making excuses just delays it. Looking at what, how bad the other people are and I'm not like that just puts it off. John Stott writes, sometimes in a futile attempt to escape the inescapable names, God's, named God's judgment, we take refuge in a theological argument. For theology can be turned to bad uses as well as good. We appeal to God's character, especially to the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience. We maintain that he is much too kind and long-suffering to punish anybody. And that we can therefore sin with impunity. We even misapply scripture to our advantage and quote such statements as, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. But this kind of manipulative, manipulative theologizing is to show contempt for God, not honor. It is not faith. It is presumption. For God's kindness leads us toward repentance not to giving us an excuse for sinning. The second warning sign that Paul points out here to us and to his defendant, this moral person standing before them, is that man's individuality actually confirms God's impartiality. Man's individuality, and what I mean by that, is man's demand to be treated as an individual actually confirms that God is impartial. He says, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but only but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This is not teaching salvation by works, right? As he will say in just a few verses here, he will share with us that All who sin without the law also will perish without the law. And he will will remind us wrapping this uh, or, or, or venturing into salvation by grace, he'll say, we have established that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Okay, what he's actually doing here is he's letting us hear the cold, hard facts. It takes perfect, total righteousness to live in relationship with God. Notice even a righteousness on the inside. Those who buy patience. I think that basically eliminates the entire human race right there. Okay, but by patience in well-doing, speaking to the will, seeking for glory and honor and immortality and eternal-mindedness, which we don't have perfectly on this earth. The cold hard facts is this is what you better practice every moment of every day of your life. And in that, he will give eternal life. He continues along the same vein. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. Going back to that idea that, the, that the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jew, Gentile, Greek, which is considered um, wise or foolish, And the context here is judgment. Not, the context here is, is it possible to escape judgment? Not, how do we earn salvation? And the, the main crux here is if you just take out between verse 6 and verse 11, is that he will render to each one according to his works, for God shows no partiality. He will render to each one according to his works, for God shows no partiality. Now, before we move forward here, I, I want to share with you something that, that, um, that God just, just like uh, through our small group, through studying for our small group and our discussion and things, that God just brought like right to the forefront of, of my mind this past week. And the small group will probably be able to tell you exactly what it is because I think we told, took an entire small group time talking about it. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. There's a couple elements here about a life of faith. And in this context, faith in Christ for our salvation. Okay, or, or a couple elements here in terms of what is the, a person putting their faith in in order to have God as their savior rather than their judge, God as their friend, as their father rather than their judge, okay? So let's just kind of take a trip into Hebrews 11.1 1 here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Or you could say it's the confidence, other translations say, of things hoped for. What's really neat in looking at that is that term for faith 
is also used in Hebrews 1.3, and it describes Christ. Describes him as being the perfect imprint of the image of God, of the invisible God. That, that Christ is the perfect imprint, and that's the same term that he uses when he uses for faith, or con- is the, I'm sorry, when he says assurance or confidence. So, so f- faith is our right now imprinted confidence that we have in what it is that we are hoping for. It's the real time, what I'm experiencing right now, evidence, confidence of what I'm looking toward, of what I'm, what I'm, I'm banking on, what I'm planning for, what I'm living for. So, how that impacts us before we get back to what, where it comes from our passage here is that if we need more faith and less fear, we need to invest some understanding and some examination and answer the question, what am I hoping for? What does Scripture tell me that I have hope for? My faith in knowing that me standing up here speaking from God's word is a confidence that God loves you and God is open to your repentant heart and God wants to grow you and God wants to teach you with his Holy Spirit and God's grace is overabundant and overflowing and, and this room is full of it and we're swimming in it right now. That's all that I'm hoping in. And to focus on that and to, and to meditate on that and to build my, my understanding of that gives me faith. It gives me a confidence and assurance. I'm imprinted right now with what it is that I'm hoping for. Now notice, though, what if what you're hoping for isn't true? And your faith is worthless. Understand what Paul is doing here is he is pointing out to his reader what you are putting your hope in, in your own righteousness, in your own morality, in your own philosophizing and equivocating that I'm not as bad as those people is junk. He's, he's attacking with logic, what they are hoping in. In the hope that they will let go of this worthless faith in their own goodness. And this is what mankind, this is what your friends and your family and and your neighbors who are trusting in their own righteousness need to understand the very presence of hypocrisy, the very presence of the idea that, well, God's going to, I'm an individual person. God's going to look at my merits. You know, there's this scale. He's going to take out everything that I've done because it all, it's all worth something. He's going to put it on the scale. 
and he's going to weigh it out. He's going to look at me individually. And Paul says that very fact that we, th- we are, think that there's a personal God that's going to deal with me personally because I love all these wonderful sides of him, this patience, this loving kindness, all of this. And he's saying, do you not understand that for you to stand individually before him, that he, by his very nature, is impartial. He will judge you by his standard of righteousness, not by yours. You're confirming his impartiality. There is no partiality in him. I don't know if you've ever tried to remodel something while you live in the middle of it. I, I, some of you uh, saw pictures on Facebook as, you know, I'm in, a, I'm in the middle of a one-year remodel of uh, our kitchen. And it was like the cabinets, and these cabinets were all built there in the kitchen, right? So it's whole pieces of plywood, you know, for the base of all the cabinets. And I'm taking a sawzall with the couple of hours I have, you know, at a time. And like, okay, well, today I'm going to take this much cabinet out. You know, so we need to pull all that stuff out and find a place for it. And it got to where all that was left was the sink and the dishwasher. And like the countertop was like busted on the ends, you know, and the, and the cabinets were cut with a, with a sawzall out. And we're trying to live amidst this as we're remodeling it. It's such a wonderful thing, you know, <laughs> that I am so envious I'll admit it. I'm envious, you know, when people like can buy a house and just like do everything to it right before they they move in. Adam, I can't stand you. No, <laughs> no. The, the, but they can just got do everything before they move in, you know, and just take care of it all. Just just get you know, or like those TV shows on home coveting television, um, that you know where it's like it's demo day, you know. And they just get to rip it all out. Along that line, Paul is taking a wrecking ball. And he's like, oh, oh, let me see your righteousness here. Let's set it up here. Okay, wow, that's great. Look at that. Hold on a second. Pulls the wrecking ball up and just levels it. Because there's nothing there within a person's own righteousness that is any good for salvation. And we'll see this when we get into the first part of chapter 3 where he just lists off one thing after another. There is none who seeks God. No, not one. All have fallen into sin. And that's what it takes for a person to come to Christ is for the wrecking ball, the loving wrecking ball of the gospel, the bad news of the gospel to just level out their own righteousness. And to say, I got nothing. I got nothing on my own. But the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes And we go through 
that same cycle as God changes us. And you remember that? The same cycle of the gospel, of realizing that I cannot stand before God in my own righteousness, and I need him to change my sinful position and call me righteous. And then we find God's grace meet us there. And we find that his grace is sufficient through Christ. And we receive that grace. And we allow it to change our position from sinner to saint. And it's the same cycle of growth for us when we know Christ is our Savior. When we come face to face with our sin and God's righteous standard and we realize, I can't change myself. Nothing I'm bringing to the table here is going to change me. I need God and his Holy Spirit to change me. And then we find his grace overflowing, riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. And he pours it out on us and we receive his grace to change us. Nothing of my own I bring, only to Christ I cling. And then we learn something else that needs to change. That's why, you know, the hymn, Just As I Am, works for someone who comes to Christ saying, I need salvation, as well as the person that comes and says, I need sanctification. Where it says, just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings within and fears without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because I'm righteous. No. Because thy promise I believe. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. The third warning sign here is that man's conscience reveals God's perfect standard. Man's conscience reveals God's perfect standard. Picking up in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law that are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, this is the, perf- the first spot in the book of Romans where the term justified comes in. Okay? And the picture here is in this courtroom where you have the defendants and the judgment finally comes down from the judge, guilty or righteous what the judge is going to declare at that moment, gavel down. To be justified is for the judge to declare this person is righteous. In this situation, there ain't no way that the person is going to be declared righteous before God. And that's what Paul is arguing. And we will see 
later in Romans how it is that an unrighteous person, as we all are, can be declared righteous before a righteous God, can be justified. But he's saying here, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And here's the deal. No one does it with patience in well-doing, seeking honor and glory and eternal life and immortality. And here he's arguing for the fact that everybody has a law that they're intended to live by, whether it be written down or simply on their hearts. And it is a reflection of the fact that God has a perfect righteous standard that is the evaluation. He continues on in verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have a law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You know, our culture has like, we still, even, even a unsaved culture still is obsessed because of our being made in the image of God, still obsessed with a judgment day or justice. In the same way, as I've said before, how when you sit through a movie and justice isn't carried out, it's like everybody walks out of the theater like, what is wrong with this writer? That's not the way it was supposed to happen. The bad guy wasn't supposed to win. The damsel in stress wasn't supposed to die. The hero wasn't supposed to end up without being able to serve justice out here. Justice in, in a perfect judgment day of all those awful people is written on all of our hearts. It's assumed on even in a godless culture. And I love how Paul talks about how the person's conscience is their very evidence that there's a perfect standard that they're going to be judged by. The picture that he paints here is the person standing before Christ Jesus and the very secrets of his heart are revealed and there within that setting, his very thoughts are going to condemn him because his very thoughts throughout his life was both excusing his behavior and then on another point saying, I really got to stop that. I really, it's accusing his behavior. And then he's like, ah, but I'm not as bad as this other guy, so I'm okay. No, I really need to, I really need to be different than this. And he's saying, on that day when Christ will judge the very secrets of man, the person's own thoughts are going to, to, to be shown that, Okay, you excused yourself here and you accused yourself over here. 
And he's trying to say to this moralist, your own conscience is going to condemn you. And you know that it's there because you know that one day you will excuse what you do and the next day you will accuse yourself of what you do. And understand that it is evidence that you will be judged on a perfect standard one day. I had a coworker when I was um, in college working at this data entry place and um, you know, it was a bunch of college students and a bunch of adults that wanted to be working somewhere else. And um, just struck up an evangelistic relationship with um, this uh, guy that was local and um, understood that he was, uh, had some, was pretty free of sexual moor- moorings and things. Um, uh, he himself was bisexual. He hung out in the homosexual community and things and and um, it was interesting talking to him one day. He was very comfortable with this conversation because he would say, you know, I, I, yeah, I, tell, my, I tell my friends, you can't tell me that there's, that there's not a God. And they'd be like, what, what are you talking about? You, that's ridiculous. And you'd say, well, tell me this. Is it wrong to kill? You know, if, if you walked up and found someone killing someone out on the street, a perfectly innocent person sitting there killing them, is that, is that wrong to you? And he would say, the, the very fact that you have a standard in your mind of, of any level of what's right and wrong, that right there is evidence within you that there is a righteous God. So he's very comfortable with that. But when we're having the conversation about Romans 1, and I'm reading to him about what it says about men giving up the natural function uh, of a woman and burning in their desire for one another, his response was, you know what? What some sage wrote 2,000 years ago doesn't have any effect on me. The fact is, is that Mike was under judgment of his own conscience and knew it. It's kind of like a person that that, um, you know, decides they would need to bulk up a little bit, and so they buy a big sweatshirt and a bunch of balloons, <laughs> right? And, and they start tucking the balloons under there and stuff, and maybe they, they're brave enough to venture out in public like this. But the very ridiculous idea of that situation reveals several things. Uh, one, it reveals that they don't think they they, they don't think they're fine the way they are. Secondly, it reveals that there's a standard in their mind that they want to achieve. And third, it's not working. And that's the same sort of situation that Paul is pointing out to this person. Your own thoughts accuse you and excuse you, given whichever day it's on. And we can identify with that too. We can identify very plainly with that. Like we said, oh, well, I'm not as bad off as this family. God's gospel, his grace, through, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, is meant 
to set us free from making excuses and to embrace his change in our life. And he's patient with us. He's patient with us. And it's so wonderful to walk by his grace. And I hope you're reminded of that this morning. We started out talking about dangerous water, currents, unforeseen. Reminded me of a, of a story of when I was a kid. I, I didn't remember. I've got pictures of this vacation down to Florida with my family, and I'm really sunburned. It's like painful to look at. Um, I don't know why I share that. But um, my dad tells this story about when he and my brother, he decided to take my brother out snorkeling. Um, and uh, the campground that we were out at out on the Florida Keys was kind of near an inlet. And he decided to kind of do some snorkeling out in the open water with my brother. My brother was probably uh, nine at the time. And, um, you know, my dad, they called him Frogman at the pool. He had the flippers and mask and the snorkel and everything. And my brother just had a mask and snorkel. And they go out snorkeling into the open water. And my dad is um, snorkeling around, and every now and then he, he comes up and he looks back and he's kind of looking around. And they're kind of snorkeling around a little bit more. Everything seems fine. He picks his head up, looks over, and he realizes that where they came out, the inlet, there was a bridge over the inlet. And he looks over and he's like, that bridge is a lot further away than it was. And panic strikes him. They're being swept out to sea without even knowing it. And he still says to this day, if I hadn't had flippers on, we would not have made it. He grabbed my brother by the hand and just kicked it into high gear and swam for their lives back toward the land. That is the type of danger that you and I are in. If you've received Christ as your Savior, coming to Him by, for His grace by faith alone, you have nothing to fear regarding Him casting you away. But we can drift. We can get caught in the dangerous, subtle current of either thinking it's all based on our works. And where we're going to arrive at with that is, it's good enough. I'm fine. I'm better than the folks of Romans 1. I'm better than the people of Corinth. And we can drift so far away from what God intended, the joy of His presence, of His grace, the life, the abundant life that we were intended to have in Him. We just drift from that. Or we just get to where we just accept sin. Being forgiven doesn't mean accepting sin in our life as okay. Because in the same way, we're, we're, we're sacrificing the joy of the Lord. We're sacrificing the abundant life in Christ. We're sacrificing living by fear 
We're sacrificing living by faith rather than by fear. And if that's you, I just implore you to say to the Lord, whatever, Lord, whatever you want, whatever you want to do in me. Lord, if if you've been thinking that you've got enough in you, uh, you got got enough righteousness. And, And you realize I've been comparing myself to everybody else. But where have I grown? I really want to challenge you to take that to the Lord personally and see where he takes you. And don't, don't, don't hold anything back. You'll never regret it. Let's close in prayer.